Welcome to the Benefits Executive Roundtable, hosted by Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Dorothy is a nationally recognized benefits and compliance consultant and group health broker. Here, you'll listen to industry experts break down the latest news and trends in employee benefits, healthcare reform, regulations and compliance, all designed to empower executive decisions. Welcome to the Benefits Executive Roundtable. I'm your host, Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting, and I want to provide you with the first of a few special sessions, which are excerpts from our recent ABC Lunch and Learn seminar from January 24th, 2023. My guests today include Kathy Rafino, Vice President of Train Me Today, and Marilyn Monahan of Monahan Law Office. In this session, we're pulling audio excerpts from that in-person session on employment and workplace laws updates for 2023. Please forgive any background noises or attendee question distortion or volume differences in this recording. Please be advised that the video recording of this in more detail can be found on our on-demand education platform, the Empowered Education Center, which is on our website at advancedbenefitconsulting.com. I hope that you enjoy this very informative podcast. I'm Dorothy Koshu. I'm the president of Advanced Benefit Consulting. I have with me Kathy Rufino at the end of the table. She's with Train Me Today. She's an HR consultant. She's the vice president of Train Me Today. Uh, and so many designations, I don't even want to try to repeat them all. <laughs> and Marilyn Monahan is to my immediate left, and she is our benefits and insurance attorney. And I think a lot of you know Marilyn. So we're going to go ahead and get started. And if you have questions, if you're in the room, if you have questions, just go ahead and raise your hand, and we'll take those questions. We'll, I'll repeat them back so that the microphone picks up the questions. So we're going to go ahead and get started. Welcome, Kathy. Thank you, Dorothy. Good morning. <laughs> so I'm not going to talk that fast. <laughs> I'm trying to make up time. <laughs> well, you tell me if I need to speed up then. <laughs> so we, um, as Dorothy said, we're going to cover this morning um, the first part of this about the laws, things that have changed, and um, Marilyn and I will touch on as much as we can. This is not going to be, you know, making you attorneys. That's her job. Um, <laughs> But at least functional practice, you know, practical kind of HR processes that you're going to need to maybe think about and maybe adjust some of your policies to be in a compliance with the laws as they change. Um, and some of the stuff we're going to talk to you about is not going to be implemented right away because things are on stay or hold, but you need to be aware of them just in case they pull the trigger and say, nope, it's in. Okay, so. Um, fair enough? Fair enough. <laughs> okay. So California, because we love law, <laughs> we, we implement every September, the governor goes through this flurry of signing new laws. And it doesn't have to be just employment. It can be on a lot of things. But that just basically means the end of the year, we all scramble trying to make sure we're in compliance by January 1. Rarely happens, but um, that's okay. You still have time to get in compliance. Okay. So we're going to talk about the FAST Act. This has to do with restaurants. Everybody heard about this and then nobody understood it, which is why it's kind of on hold. <laughs> so <laughs> the idea behind it is that restaurant workers are going to be insured a livable wage. What is that? That is saying that they can make the money they make from that job and not have to get supplemental income from somewhere else. So it basically covers their basic needs, their basic necessities. What does that mean? Well, they're talking like 22, 23, $24 an hour. Or like your server at McDonald's. That's a lot of money. Um, and they're even talking about franchises. So 
the restaurant industry went ahead and said, yeah, we're not really sure about that, and they didn't really like this council being established that was going to make all these rules and all these judgments and assessments about how they did business. Um, if it is a franchise, the franchise holders would not be the ones who would be held. So the franchisors are not going to be responsible, but the franchisees would be on an individual basis. Thankfully, they got enough signatures um, from the restaurant industry to say, yeah, we think this should have been voted on by the people who it's going to affect. And so right now, um, California Superior Court in Sacramento has put a stay on it. And this, what that means is all those signatures that they did gather to try and put this on a ballot have to be counted to make sure that all the signatures are legitimate. And they have until March, the end of March, to do that. So until then, there's a stay. But I believe, Marilyn, um, am I right in, in remembering that California EDD is still saying move forward while this is on stay? That I haven't heard one okay. way or the other. So um, I will check it while you're talking. But um, I, I have not heard one way or the other. Yeah, because Employment Development Department, they're just like, yeah, we think you should go ahead, which is frightening because people are going to do a lot of work to get this in place, and then it might not pass, and it might get on you know, our, our voting ballots in 2024, so we would have done all this work for nothing. But you have to be prepared for that. Okay. Our next one, the expansion of the current family leave law, otherwise known as CIFRA, or SEFRA, as some people say it, um, California Family Rights Act. This was not a big change for us. Um, what this changed is another designation for who is covered under this law. So when they take family leave, we had big changes um, before that added you know, siblings and grandparents and parents-in-laws and all of those things. Those still stand. What they added was what is called a designated person. So what this really means is that some people don't have family. They don't have moms and dads and parents and, you know, um, parent-in-laws and children. So they can designate someone who maybe is close to them. You know, so maybe your family's on the East Coast and you're out here and you have a roommate or a boyfriend or a girlfriend, somebody in your family, your, your chosen family, who you want to designate as the person you would take care of or who, who would be responsible um, in this law, okay? So it just is adding another thing. What does that mean for you in practical terms? They can use a designated person. You can create your policy to say that they, ha they have to designate that person, one person per year. You can be more generous and let them designate a different person for each incident if you like, but you're only required to designate have them designate one person per year. Okay, so in a 12-month period, they have to identify that person at the time that they are requesting the leave. So when they go on leave, they can't all of a sudden change midstream. They have to designate who that person is at the time of the leave. If your policy is going to be that, you know, Bob, their boyfriend, is their designated person, then Bob, their boyfriend, is their designated person all year, all 12 months. So when they come to you in April and they say, well, Susie... My roommate is now my designated person. Unless your policy is going to allow that, they can't change. Okay? Is PML paying for this? 
Can you tell me the name then for this designated person too? Um, well, it, P, PFL is tied to CIFRA. It's not tied to the Can you do me a favor? Can you repeat the question so that the microphone Oh, So the question is, is PFL tied to this? So paid family leave, they can take paid family leave can, at the same time that they're taking CIFRA. It's about the leave, not the individual. Because I think most people are going to want the pay, and that's where this is going to come from. They don't care about the time. They care about the money. Uh, for True. Me here, it's you know not going to be an issue probably. Mm -hmm. But I'm just wondering, is are is a family going down to a designated person also? It follows it. They haven't said it hasn't yet, so that can always happen. <laughs> <laughs> Someone will raise that question from a from a usage standpoint, and then they'll have to rethink that. They typically, if they're not changing or specifically calling that out under CIFRA, then it stands that everything else under CIFRA applies. And right now, we can use those concurrently. So the difference is CIFRA is 12 weeks, PFL is only eight. So they would only get eight, eight weeks of pay. Okay. Can I add two things? Absolutely. The FAST Act, I did check, and you are right. A state agency said they're going to go ahead and start with the processes to start implementing it, irrespective of the court order. So everything's very much up in the air. Um, but I also wanted to add about AB 1041 and the changes to CIFRA. I agree that this is not the biggest change we've seen in CIFRA, but just a reminder, since 2021, they've been tweaking this law every single year. And so just a reminder, probably everyone in this room has taken care of this, but make sure your notices are up to date, your handbooks are up to date, also your SPDs and your wrap documents, because you have to allow people to take leave and or stay on their coverage uh, while they're on CIFRA leave. So you want to make sure that your documents uh, parallel what the law says. Right. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I knew I had heard something about one agency was going to continue the FAST Act. So, um, so the other thing on CIFRA, um, good point that, yeah, it's been changing a lot. Keep in mind the parents-in-law. We always get a question about the parents-in-law. It is not every parent-in-law they've ever had in every marriage they've ever had. It's their current family. So they don't get to do the parent-in-law from their first marriage, and this is, they're on their fifth. They have, it's their current family. So um, everyone laughs, but the funny part is they didn't clarify that until everybody in probably the legal world in HR was like, yeah, but what if they've been married seven times? So could be a lot of in-laws in there. Um, and let's face it, some people like their in-laws and not their ex. So it, it could happen. Um, what do you need to do, as Marilyn said, you guys need to be reviewing your family leave policies right now and make sure that you add that designated person as a qualifying person. Um, you need to make sure that you're tracking your leaves. So you know if you're gonna have a 12-month one designated person, make sure that that's in your policy and that's what you track. And if they come to you, make sure you have a way of, of looking at who their designated person is because they could change it and ask for somebody else mid-year, and if you aren't tracking that, once you give it, you can't take it away. So, there's, you know, we give it, then we cannot take away. <laughs> okay, um, SB 1044, so this was about um, how employers can respond in emergency situations and the rights that employees have. The summary of this is this. We've had a lot of wildfires, we've had a lot of unfortunately shootings. We've had a lot of school events happening. I'm trying to say this in the nicest way without being really depressing. 
We live in a different world right now, and people need to have the ability to stay in contact with their loved ones and stay safe in situations where it may not be safe. So what this basically means, drilling it down, is if we have wildfires, let's say, and it is close, and the emergency personnel are saying, you know, it's not safe, um, you should evacuate, but they're not requiring you to. If an employee still feels unsafe, they have the right to leave. And you are not allowed to retaliate against them. So you cannot give them demerits for missing time. You cannot mark them off as a bad employee. They have a right to feel safe. If they have a child at school and something happens on the news, they have a right to have their cellular devices and use them to make sure that their family is safe. So the things that we would normally not think twice about, these things are now going to be their right to possess. So they have a right to stay in contact with a family member who may be in an unsafe situation or who may be you know, in an area that's being evacuated. They have this right now to do this. They have the right to leave work and not come to work if they feel that the conditions are unsafe or unhealthy. Do we have to pay them? I don't think this is a paid one. I don't think it is. If they have uh, paid salary, I mean, if they have PTO on books, they can. Uh, they can always opt to take PTO. You cannot make them take PTO. Can't make them. Because we make them. That's a whole other thing. <laughs> yeah, there are circumstances when we can require people to take PTO. Um, up, up ahead of time, we can put that in our policy and say, look, if you're going to go out on leave for this, you must use at least this much PTO. Um, a lot of times employers will require people who are going to go out on disability to take X amount of PTO. Sometimes it's just the first seven days because that's what's not paid. But there are circumstances where you cannot do that. So it's advisable to check before you make that a policy. Make sure that you are legally covered <laughs> before you do that. Okay. All right. Um, AB 1601, this is not going to apply to everybody. It's a very um, specific group of people that it's going to apply to. It's call centers. Um, this is in response to, as you can all guess, all those call centers going offshore. So taking jobs out of the United States and moving them offshore. So this ties into the California WARN Act, which applies when we have mass layoffs, closures, we have to give certain notices. What this is now saying is that if you are gonna close your doors, if you are gonna move a lot of people or lay people off and move a lot of your business to another place, you have to report it. Not only do you have to report it, Employment Development Department of California is going to publish it. So everyone will know that you moved everyone out of California to, you know, some other country. Um, and everyone will draw the lines that, oh, you did that because it's cheaper. <laughs> so, you know, but right now, you know, we're in a weird job market. And so I don't know that this has as much impact on people right now because everyone's struggling to find talent to hire people. So they're just like, well, we don't have jobs anyway. We don't have people to take those jobs anyway. So it's kind of an interesting area that happened this year of all years. Um, but just be aware that this, if you have groups where you're going to be doing mass layoffs, it is not unthinkable that they will expand this to other industries. 
not unthinkable. Production, mm -hmm. easily production stuff. Where we think we can get it for less money overseas, it could be something where they're going to start saying, you know, not only do you have to issue the WARN Act, but you have to tell us why you're doing this, where you're doing it, what's the reason, and it's going to be reported. And if you violate it, there will be penalties and fines, including you will be excluded from a lot of the tax credits and things like that that you might be entitled to normally for a five-year period. They're not messing around with this stuff. So what they're trying to do, obviously, is keep jobs here as best they can. I don't know if it's the... <laughs> well, you know, the interesting thing, um, California has a very interesting image about laws, but I will tell you, over the last probably four or five years, we are not the strictest on a lot of things. There are far more states moving and, and implementing far more laws than you ever would have thought um, before. What, what are the big states for do, that are doing that? Well, I will tell you the one that shocked me the most, I think you and I talked about this previously, the one that shocked me the most is just realizing years ago that Texas on Texas. sexual harassment, it's a felony. It's sexual assault. And here it's a tort. Bad employer. <laughs> you know, it's like, shame on you. I mean, people get really surprised about that. New York's anti-harassment, anti-discrimination, far stricter than ours. By far. People don't think that there's like Maine, Illinois, they all have sexual harassment laws. Texas has an anti-bullying law in the workplace. We don't. It's not a law. We shouldn't do it, but it's not a law yet. We just, you know, have to be included in anti-harassment training, but it's actually not a law yet. So please don't take that that you can go and bully your employees. <laughs> don't do that. That's a no. <laughs> um, but yeah, so there's a lot of interesting things that have come down the books, and um, you know, our California paid sick time. You know, we've grumbled about it since 2017. You should see Seattle's. Washington is crazy. Um, Oregon is is a big one. They have far greater, far more generous um, laws in that area for their employees than we do. So it's very interesting when you start picking apart all these different states and go, "Wow, we're not as crazy as people thought we were." <laughs> so the joke used to be we would go to conferences and everybody would say, oh, where do you practice HR? And we go, California. And they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> we're like, no, it's fine. Now they tell us other states will go, oh, we're so sorry. <laughs> so it works both ways. Um, so you're not, you're not alone. <laughs> other people are struggling. The reason, too, you have to all remember, we get laws in place because people don't behave the way we should. And unfortunately, for those of you who are behaving the way we should, treating our employees fairly, paying equitable wages, doing the right thing, you're going to have to take that train ride too. So those new laws, they don't carve out the bad employers, they just apply to everyone. So it's an unfortunate set of circumstances, but it is what it is. Okay. So, okay, so call centers. Um, bereavement was one of the big changes we had. This is huge. Um, we have never been required to provide bereavement leave, and we now are required to provide it. And there's some twists to this one. So, at FACE, you have to provide five days of bereavement leave for every occurrence of bereavement that the employee has. Five days. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to take it, but they are entitled to it. So, if their mom passes away, and then, and then dad passes away. And then grandma passes away. 
multiple bereavement days, leaves, but right not there. designated persons. But not designated persons. And it's not paid, right? Bereavement, it is not paid except if you have a bereavement policy in place currently. So let's say you currently provide three days of paid bereavement leave. You will have to continue that. Plus give them two more unpaid days. So if you currently have a paid policy in place, you have to keep that in place. For now. But as this law stands alone, if you don't have a paid policy in place, then no, it is not paid. You're not required to pay it. Can they use PTO? Yes, they can if they request it. <laughs> so I knew you were going to ask that. Um, so yeah, if they want to take PTO during that time, they certainly can. Okay. One thing I thought I was going to say, and maybe you haven't gotten here yet, but I thought it was interesting that they put a privacy provision into the bereavement leave. Yeah, so, and what Marilyn's talking about is you, you can't expose or tell others why they're taking bereavement. You can ask for proof, but you are not allowed to share that. So this is a privacy issue, too. And part of that tags on with all the new privacy laws we've had over the last couple of years. California became really strict about you better protect people's privacy. And this is on top of HIPAA that you all know. This is that we've got some serious privacy issues. So, you know, you have to comply with that too. Um, you can, again, ask for proof. And the proof can be things like a death certificate, it can be the announcement, it can be obituaries. Um, you can ask for that. Why would you want that? Well, as Marilyn said, if mom passed away, then dad passed away, then grandma passed away, then grandpa passed away, it's like, oh my lord. Um, this person, in my opinion, would probably want Sifra because I would be destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> so you might want to just do a check. Um, but keep in mind, if you ask it of one, you must ask it of all. You cannot just pick and choose who you're going to ask proof from. We have a we have a question from uh, yeah. someone online. Are step family members included in bereavement? <sighs> My guess is yes, if it's following CFR rules, because step child, step parent, step. I brought a copy of the bill with me, so oh, I'm going to find it okay. in my little Maryland stack here. Confirm, so yeah. Sherry will answer your question more <laughs> in just a moment. But <laughs> okay. Thank you for your question. Um, so what, you, what do you need to do now? Action items. Obviously, you need to, if you don't have a bereavement policy, you get to create one now to be in compliance. If you do have one, you need to review what your policy says because you are going to have to make those caveats if you are already providing pay. You need to attach this to it. If you're already providing five days of sick paid bereavement or paid bereavement leave, then you're fine. You're in compliance. If you're providing seven, you have to continue the seven. Now, next year when you update things, you can certainly change policies. You just can't change it midstream. Okay? So you I mean you always have a right to change your policy. But if you change it, that means you're gonna have to make sure that you keep in place the five days. Okay, so the five days has to stay. Oh, family member under the bereavement leave law is defined as a spouse or a child, parent, sibling, grandparent, grandchild, domestic partner, or parent-in-law as defined in CIFRA. And CIFRA does define child as step, adoptive, foster. Parent as step. Yeah, so it's under CIFRA. That does not surprise me. Yeah. Because they usually try and stick... Pretty, pretty close to that. 
Um, anything else you wanted to add on here? Nope. Okay. I think you covered it. <laughs> okay. Our favorite one, um, cannabis. Let's talk about marijuana again because we have not talked about that enough over the years. <laughs> okay. Um, this is not as complicated as it appears to be, at least in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure it will get far more complicated once people start trying to work around it. Um, AB 2188 basically says we cannot discriminate against employees for their use of cannabis outside of work. It doesn't mean people get to have a free-for-all and now, you know, smoke in your parking lot. That's not what it means. Um, so stay inside your car. So stay inside your car. <laughs> <laughs> when you unroll those windows, be careful. Um, it's just going to amend the government code, um, 12945 and basically makes it illegal for you as employers to discriminate against anybody who uses cannabis, just like you would not be able to discriminate against somebody who drinks on the weekends, as long as it's not impairing them at work. What they do on their free time is theirs. The challenge is because a lot of us do drug testing, pre-employment drug testing, and marijuana tends to stay in the system for a very long time. So, um, there is non-psychoactive non cannabis traces, met metabolites, metabolites, metabolite. it's just really technical, anyways, there's a section. I'm a sole proprietor and I never test myself. <laughs> <laughs> I don't test myself because I'm worried about the results, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding, <laughs> just joking. <laughs> Bad HR humor. <laughs> um, what this means is the test can't be um, based on the things that are non-psychoactive. Non-psychoactive. Um, things like THC, the stuff that is, is more um, the psychoactive piece of it, that's what you're looking for. So you still have the right, like you normally do, that if somebody appears to be impaired, whether it's alcohol, drugs, legal or otherwise, right? Even prescription drugs, we don't want people working if they are impaired, it's for safety. It's for their own safety and the safety of everyone else. So we have to start wrapping our brains around the fact that it's anything that impairs their ability to perform their job safely. And that can be prescription drugs. So, and I'm not talking Oxycontin, I'm saying, you know, somebody had a back injury and they have muscle relaxants. That could impair their ability to drive a forklift. That is a safety issue. So even somebody like that, we have to be careful and not just look at things like cannabis, which is now legal, um, as a bad thing. So just keep that in mind. When you're doing your pre-employment screening, you are still allowed under federal and state law to say if you can't pass the test, you can't be employed. You're still allowed to do that. But once they're here, you have to be careful. Okay. I thought they were going to wait on this until they found a way to test or feed on right this minute. Well, that would make sense. But as we know, most of the time we get legislation that nobody knows how to really implement. They just throw the laws at us and then we all scramble. Right? And then people like the three of us sit there and try to figure out. Well, you know, case in point, when they threw all the COVID stuff at us, we're all like, okay, but how does that work? And they're like, well, we don't know yet, but that's we'll the law. We're like, great. <laughs> so, um, so you're right. Most of us had to figure it out. Yeah. We're the ones who figured it out. Yes. I have a question about um, the impairment piece, right? Um, what if the person is not necessarily doing anything wrong, but you can tell that their reaction time 
is delayed, right? Mm -hmm. So that could pose a risk, like we work with children with disabilities, and right. we can have a kid that's going to run off on you, and you really need to be. So I'm just wondering that judgment call between they haven't done anything wrong or hazardous, hazardous per se, but they look impaired, they're kind of a little bit laid, you know, to react. And I can also see somebody, you know, saying, who are you or what's your, your credential to say I'm impaired? Because mm -hmm. it's kind of like a soft area, right? They're not like breaking stuff or dropping stuff. But on the other hand, being in the field for so long, you kind of know this person's just not reacting. They're under responding. I'm just curious if, you know, what the call might be for something like that. I know it's hard, but even just any um, idea or guidance would be so I'll, I'll ask you in a minute what your opinion is, but from an HR practical standpoint, we always tell our managers and supervisors, listen, don't just go in there and say, are you under the influence of drugs? That's <laughs> really not the best way to get a good response because sometimes that's not what's the problem. Sometimes it's something else. You all need to be aware that sometimes people have slow reactions or they're not acting right because there's something medical going on with them. They are having a stroke. They are having a seizure. They are pre-seizure. We need to be careful that we're not just jumping to the conclusion that they're under the influence of something. So having said that, you know, I always approach people and just say, hey, you know, you seem to be a little off today. Is everything all right? Because then you've got that eye-to-eye -eye contact with them, and you can listen to their language and see if they're, if they're, if they're slurring or if something's going on and, and have a better way to assess it. Right. If I could just add, you know, just to add a, a, maybe another level to it, we're behavior analysts, so we're totally looking at detail and behavior. Mm -hmm. It's not so much like, oh, we feel. So we're probably going to see someone whose eyes are dilated. Mm -hmm. um, maybe they're red. Maybe they look lost. Yeah, this is the stuff we would look at just because of our profession. So it would be based on relatively objective, you know, um, would somebody else could see themselves and we would be noting that mm -hmm. and that's when we would approach and we still ask like an open-ended question but it's hard because it, it's not like they're breaking stuff or they're you know what i mean so mm -hmm. i'm just wondering what guidance they you have to be careful anytime you approach somebody with that kind of conversation pending you need to be careful because you're right they could turn around and say you singled me out for whatever reason they think you singled them out you know, discriminatory, you know, harassing them, especially if it's somebody whose performance has not been great. Maybe you just wrote them up a week ago and all of a sudden now they feel attacked because why are you singling me out? So, it, you know, if that's the field you're in, I mean, you know this as well as I do, you have to have the conversation. For the safety of the people around them, for the safety of the kids that are in your environment, you have to have the conversation because otherwise you'd be negligent. But you have to tread carefully. I'm good with that okay. response. I agree with that response. So um, SB 523 is the Contraceptive Equity Act. Um, and I will ask you to jump in here because there's laws around this for this. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you all are aware that these laws are coming in response to Roe v. Wade being overturned. So this is what's happening is the state is trying to put in laws that protect rights for men and women to make their own health decisions when it comes to reproduction and contraception and all that stuff. So this is going to expand um, access to birth control regardless of gender, regardless of your insurance coverage, 
and it requires all of our insurance plans to cover over-the-counter, certain over-the-counter um, birth control without caution. Even grandfather? Yes. Well, it would only be fully insured. Uh, it would only be fully insured. The, Cal the state of California can't mandate self-funded right. plans. Right. Yeah. Um, you cannot discriminate against any employee for their choices of reproductive health, whatever decisions they're making. Um, just a side note, I have no idea why you would even care. Not my business. So, um, and that was even before all the Roe v. Wade stuff. I just never felt it was my business to know when they were going to procreate. <laughs> I'm just never really that interested. Um, is there male contraceptive? Yes. So this also includes um, vasectomies. Oh, vasectomies. It includes, yeah, these new laws cover vasectomies. I don't know if it covers condoms. That would be over the counter. It they would be. It's be stated. It. I believe it's FDA oh. approved. I don't know if condoms are FDA approved. They have to be. I would, I would say Trojan would have to be, right? <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's uh, I don't know the answer to that question. We write down a list of questions, okay. which we will get back to you yeah, on. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it would have to be because of what they're made of. And we'll just leave it there. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Okay. Um, so just keep in mind, you cannot read... read Retaliate against employees, you cannot use this as employment decisions, whatever their reproductive health decisions are, that's their business. Okay, okay transparency. Um, SB 1162, you've all heard about this. Um, I will cut to the chase on this one. You all need to have your pay scales in place now. You need to be working on this now. It is not something that is done quickly. So if you do not have pay scales for all positions in your company, you need to get them in place. Um, if, and it has to be a sound compensation plan. So please, please, please don't wait till the last minute. These have to be submitted. I believe May 10th is the first time you have to submit them, and then it will be every year, in sometime in May, uh, every year thereafter. You cannot wait on this stuff. Um, and I will give you an example. We are doing pay transparency work for several of our clients and they're not big clients and it takes time you have to have all your job descriptions all your pay grades all everything has to be in there what are your current ranges what are you basing it on and it has to all flow so please make sure you're getting this in place um, if you have 100 or more employees you're also going to need to need to include this um, on your data report just like you do your eeo1s it will have to be on there if you apply or if you post jobs, you have to include your pay ranges in your jobs now. Everybody. If you use places like Indeed or you know an agency that's going to post a job for you, you must provide them that same information so that they can post it on the job. So there's no workaround. <laughs> you have to show what you're what you're going to be paying. Um, the complication in that everybody's grumbling because now your competitors know exactly what you're going to be paying. But guess what? You also know what your competitors are paying. So it's going to be an interesting pathway forward on this because it's just now getting implemented this year. So this will be interesting. 
One article I said, they, they speculate that this will lead to more pay equity, that there won't be such a divergence. But for those people who are way off the pay scales, they probably won't be so, employers will be less likely to give um, one employee or two employees a really high salary. So that's mm -hmm. who it's going to affect potentially negatively, those people who are paid very highly. Right. And everyone will kind of more fall to the center. That's the prediction I've heard. Right. We, we have a question? We have a question from, yeah, from Zoom. Uh, is this different from pay data reports we had to send last year? Yes. This is a new law. So, so my question is, we're going to submit this to the state of California. How is it going to be reproduced so that other companies can see what will be Well, when their recruiters are looking online, seeing who's hiring for what positions. It's online. Oh, anything so that you post. The state of California, we're submitting it when we're doing we have job postings. When you post on Indeed, you have to post what your pay range is for that position. Yeah. Now, if you don't post it publicly, it wouldn't be out there, but everyone posts publicly these days. It wouldn't be out there, but keep in mind, this law, if your employees are That's wanting right. to apply for an internal job, you must also That's provide right. them that pay scale. So if they say, I want to know what the pay scale is for my position, you have to provide it. I learned that from the podcast. You did. <laughs> yeah. So there's the podcast no, with me a couple months ago. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you all know employees are allowed to talk about their pay. You're not. <laughs> so it's not like they're going to be surprised at anything. It's really about, as Marilyn said, it's trying to get pay equity. Why did this law pass? So you asked earlier, why do we have all these laws? Here's why it passed. They asked us nicely to please pay people according to the job and not the gender. Then they asked us again, and they put in the Pay Equity Act. And we still didn't learn our lesson, so now they're saying, here, here, here's, your, here's the rules now. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to tell everybody what you pay. And guess what? We're not going to move forward again. <laughs> <laughs> because I have chat. Okay. And guess what? We are going to also fine you. So we didn't learn our lesson when they asked nicely. We didn't learn our lesson when they passed Pay Equity Act. So now they're going to pass the Pay Transparency Act, and they're going to attach painful money to it. So $100 when you fail to submit your report, $100 per employee. It's not cheap. If you do it again, it's $200 per employee. If you still pay to if you still fail to publish your pay, you can be fined up to $10,000 per violation. This is going to hit you where it counts. This is a financial hit. Having to submit this data to EDD, State of California. EDD. If it's a hundred employees or more, it's going to be EEO one, so it'll be federal government. Where you where you put your EEO one reports? Most of you do that electronically. So no different than when you do all your other reporting to them. Now you're just going to add this information too. Here's the other thing. If you fail to comply with this, keep in mind, employees are aware of this. This is not a secret. They're fully aware that this has to be happening now. You know, the stuff that benefits them, they talk about. <laughs> so they are fully aware that this is happening. It doesn't benefit you not to comply because, first of all, you're not going to get the talent you're struggling already to get because they're going to go where they already know there's full transparency. They already know what they're going to get there. So they're not necessarily going to go to the place that's not in compliance for any reason. Um, you're also leaving yourselves open to lawsuits. The fact that you don't post this stuff or publish it leaves them the open door to file a claim, which could easily be class action. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's 
far less expensive. It's painful, but it's far less expensive to just comply. Okay, so action items, make sure you are developing your compensation plan with all of your jobs, your job descriptions, create some system to track your records. You are required to keep your records on this. So make sure that you're doing that. Um, get help if you don't know how to do it. It's not inexpensive to get compensation done, but once it's done, it's far easier to manage it. But you need to get it done. And remember, your, your target date is you have to report by May 10th of this year. Okay? Word to the wise, make sure you're done by May 1, because <laughs> you know something always happens in reporting. <laughs> okay? All right. Um, other laws, just a reminder, update on the rest period and breaks. Your employees still get those 10-minute breaks is what's required. If you want to give them more time for breaks, you can. Um, but don't forget to let them get those. Um, it is based on the number of hours worked. If they work three and a half hours or less, they are not actually entitled to a break. You're more than welcome to give them one. You can do more than what the law requires. You can't do less. Okay? But if they work four hours, over three and a half hours, then they have to get a 10-minute break. Meal periods. In case you didn't know, you can no longer round on meal periods. If you are doing that, please stop. California Supreme Court said, nope, can't do it. No rounding on meal periods ever. No excuse. They don't care. It's in, it, it's in direct violation of what our meal period law says, that they must get a 30-minute duty-free uninterrupted meal period. Rounding um, in the uh, Donna, Donahue versus AMN case, the courts came back and said, yeah, when we did all the math, the rounding basically shorted her a lot of hours. Um, and some she got paid more for you know the rounding, but it just basically violates the whole idea of the meal period that they get that 30 minutes. Okay, so please stop if you're doing that. Make sure you stop that now. Make sure you update your policy if it says you do rounding on all those things to clearly state it's only on the beginning and end of shifts and breaks and not meal periods. Okay. Um, let's see, minimum wage increase, if you haven't noticed, it's a new year, so that means more wage. <laughs> so it's now, for the, for the most part, $15.50 in the state of California. However, um, LA County, um, San Francisco, Oakland, San Diego, some of these areas do have different dollars. Um, I believe LA, city of LA, I believe is $16.96. I have no idea where that's 96 cents, but it is. Um, so please make sure you are checking for the area that you're in, okay? Um, Los Angeles Fair Work Week Ordinance. This is not a law, it's an ordinance, and it's actually not in place yet. Why? Because the mayor actually hasn't signed it yet, as of yesterday, had not signed it yet, so <laughs> unless they're signing right now. Um, it is not in effect, but what it's going to mean is Employers in the retail industry need to basically be better at how they are scheduling people, how they're managing their staff. Um, you have to have your schedules up 14 days in advance. Um, if the employee, if you need an employee to fill in for another employee, they actually can refuse that work. If you need more work done, the employees who are currently employed by you, they get right of first refusal of those hours versus you getting ready to hire more staff. So there's a lot of little things in there that help um, retail employees have more guaranteed work and hours. Um, 
again, it has not been signed yet, but just keep your ears and eyes open. If that happens, it's going to be probably in effect within 30 days of signing. So we'll see how that goes. And then quick reminders, you should be doing an HR audit for all of your you know, HR practices at least once a year to make sure that all your records are in place. Update your employee handbook policies. Um, make sure you include any of the new laws for 2023 that are in place. You need to make sure you've done your anti-harassment training. It's mandated every two years. Two hours for management, supervisory level people, one hour for employees. That has been in effect, um, the supervisor one since 2005, the employee one since 2017. We have no reason that we shouldn't be doing those. You can do it in any kind of method you want. Um, you can do live training, you can do online training, you can do it yourself if you're one of the qualified people under the state of California. You can even do it through the DFEH site. Um, boring, but if, but does it gets it done. <laughs> um, so it's up to you how you want to get it done, but you need to make sure you're, you're compliant. Um, if you are having employees, we have a lot of remote workers, if you have employees using their own personal devices, they need to be compensated for that. And that even means if you just sent them a text on their phone because you just wanted to know if they were okay, you just used their phone for work. It's the simplest things that we don't think about that are going to cost you money. So please make sure if you are asking them to use their personal devices that you have a policy in place how you're going to reimburse them. And then final pay, this always gets the hit. Final pay is not designated that you have to mail it to them. Final pay rule in California is you must have all of their wages ready on their final day, with the exception of if they don't give you notice. Ready for them at the place they work. It's their job to come get it. So if somebody just, you know, on Friday says, I'm out, Marilyn, see you, I'm not coming back. Oh, okay, well, I'll have your check here on Monday. Come get it. It's her job to come here and get that check. It's very different locations, like all 12 different locations in the United States. Where do you normally give them their paycheck? Uh, I usually mail it. Okay. Direct deposit and I mail it. So if you're going to direct deposit, you have to have their authorization in writing to do so. You can't just do it. I wouldn't direct deposit the final check. What I do is I do it that day mm -hmm. and certify it. You have to have their permission in writing to do that. Otherwise, you're going to pay the penalties. What if they don't get back to you? <laughs> Most people that leave don't want to talk to me. Well, the funny thing is, we aren't supposed to just send their checks to them. The Calif if they don't get their check, if they don't respond to you, then Calif you, you send it to California, and California holds it. There's an actual agency, so shockingly, that actually holds those checks, and then a week later or three weeks later when that employee says, well, where's my check? You say, oh, you have to contact them. <laughs> well, <laughs> here's the reason for that, because you as an employer want to show that you actually did everything in your power to get them their final check. Because some employees are smart enough to know if they play it long enough, you're going to owe them money. Eight hours of pay at their regular rate of pay. I have another question from the uh, from Zoom. If we have multiple offices in one county and the employee works in the field, can we use the corporate office for pickup? Yes. Yes. You just have to let them know that that's what you're doing. I'm sure there's going to be a ton of questions on pay transparency. But one of mine would be some positions you have. Can you define them maybe under your job title since you're in senior or training? 
you know, it's a little bit unfair to have somebody new come in and I think get paid the same as somebody that's got great experience and they're faster at that job. Well, you can use ranges, isn't you can, that? That's you can the use, idea ranges. use ranges. So you can say, I'm hiring for that position, and I put any anything from 15 to 27. Right. Ah. Yeah. So yeah. the pay, yeah, you can, so on pay transparency, you are still permitted to hire people based on their knowledge, skills, and abilities. So if I have somebody who's pretty green, I'm not going to pay them at the top of the scale. I'm going to pay them what I think their knowledge, skills, and abilities at that level for that position and be paid. So it's a fifteen to twenty dollar range. That's what I'll pay them. And then the more experienced person, maybe I bring them in at eighteen. Um, could you define that then? Maybe classify by years of service as well. That should be in your job description. So that's why this whole thing ties that's in. On your range. And you then my second question was for um, uh, common owned groups. Right? Would the, you'd have to add up all your numbers across your different companies to get over that 100 into the federal filing? They're counting one, the 100 headcount. It's everybody who works for you. They don't care which division they're in. Yeah, or which tax ID if you have common ownership, right? Right. Okay. Are there any rules on how big the pay range can be? No. Okay, yeah, okay. so let's talk about COVID because we haven't had enough talk about that lately. Um, you want to jump in here? <laughs> yeah, so um, as you probably know, in California, they passed pup supplemental paid sick leave last year. There was two different bills. They passed it once, then they extended it. Basically, it has expired. It expired as of December 31. The only exception was if someone was on paid sick leave on December 31, they got to run out their time. But apart from that, it's over. Uh, next item is Cal OSHA. This is probably more um, Kathy's area than mine. This is what I know about this. We all know that they passed an emergency temporary standard during COVID. They re-looked at that. They published an updated permanent standard in December. As of last week, it still hadn't been approved by the Office of Administrative Law, so that's what they're waiting for. But there are some big changes, as I understand it, in the uh, new rules that mm -hmm. will probably make employers happy, but it will probably mean you're also going to have to update your <laughs> policies and practices. So we've got a few more, oh, sorry, COVID laws. Um, just go over this kind of quickly. Um, there were, when uh, COVID passed, uh, or during the pandemic, they passed a law in California about COVID notice requirements and the situations in which you had to post a notice if someone had, might have been exposed to COVID. If you have employee portals, that's in addition to actually posting them in your locations. Okay. So wherever your, your state and federal postings are, you still have to post an actual notice for 15 days. You can also post it on portals, but you can't just post it on portals. And that has been extended for another year, so that's a good. Um, also, they also passed a bill about workers' compensation and a rebuttable presumption that if someone came down with COVID, um, it might have been caused, it might be a workplace injury. Mm -hmm. um, that rebuttable presumption has been extended for another year. It is a presumption, but it is rebuttable. There would be circumstances in which you could prove it wasn't a workplace injury. Um, AB 2068. Uh, Cal OSHA notices, um, effective January 1, 2023, there are new rules on when Cal OSHA citations, special orders, etc., have to be posted in a language other than English. And that has to be posted for three days, three working days, um, or until you have corrected whatever the unsafe condition was that you got the citation, whichever is the longest. 
So three working days or until you fix the problem, whichever is longer. So on the next slide, switching out of the state of California and going to the federal level, there were two COVID-19 emergency declarations that were uh, issued at the federal level. The first one was issued by the Department of Health and Human Services. This one has been extended ever since COVID first started in 90-day increments. It was recently extended again, so right now it is scheduled to run through April 11, 2023. I heard some scuttlebutt that they expect this will probably be extended again through the summer or through at least mid-summer, but after that might not be. Why this matters is plans, health plans, have to cover COVID testing without cost sharing so long as this uh, public health emergency is in effect. After this public health emergency runs out, you'll no longer necessarily get those eight free COVID tests per month from your plan. You might have to start paying for them. The other national emergency was one declared by originally by President Trump. President Biden has extended it twice. It runs on annual increments, and it's scheduled to run out February 28th. The reason this one matters is you'll remember back at the beginning of the pandemic, they passed what we call time frame extensions, <laughs> giving people additional time to make special enrollment requests, elect COBRA, pay their COBRA premium, and submit claims. Most of us have kind of forgotten about this, but it's still in effect so long as the president's national emergency is in effect. And I just had this come up last week where someone didn't um, request a special enrollment for a new baby on time, according to the carrier, and we were able to say, oh no, uh, you're wrong, Mr. Carrier, the time frame extensions are still in effect, so they are still with us. After the original recording of this presentation, the president announced that he intends to end both national emergencies, and that would be both the HHS public health emergency and the presidential national emergency on May 11th, 2023. A few more changes that were made on the benefits side at the federal level as a result of COVID. Just remember that um, this one is permanent and it is a provision that allows you to cover over-the-counter drugs and medicines used for medical care as well as menstrual products and reimburse them through an HSA, a health FSA, or a health reimbursement account. This is optional. The employer does not have to include it. Let's say you offer a health FSA. You can allow reimbursement of over-the-counter dr drugs and medicines, but you don't have to. It may require a plan amendment. If you didn't do it during the pandemic, you can do it next year or this year, uh, prospectively. Personal protective equipment for uh, purchased for COVID purposes, even over-the-counter, can be reimbursed through a health FSA, HSA, or HRA. Again, this um, is still in effect, um, but you may have to amend your plan document. Telemedicine. Um, during the pandemic, they allowed individuals who are covered by a high-deductible health plan to get telemedicine services and have it reimbursed below the high-deductible health plan uh, limit and still uh, and not lose el eligibility for um, to contribute to an HSA. Normally, unless it's preventive care, if something is reimbursed by your health plan below the high-deductible health plan limit, you're not allowed to contribute to an HSA. Um, they made an exception uh, during the pandemic. This was just recently extended by the Consolidated Appropriations Act that the president signed, I think December 23, he signed it. I can't remember the exact date. But it's just been extended uh, through 2024. Um, 
And this last one, student loans. Actually, I'm going to talk about student loans in a later presentation. But this was um, a student loan reimbursement plan. Employers can put that together. We've got a section on that in one of the later um, presentations. California on mandated benefits. Just remember that um, if you've got a fully insured health plan, last year, actually, um, it went into effect SB 510, a law which expands um, the situations under which health plans must cover diagnostics and screening tests for COVID-19. So I said that the um, there are going to be limitations under federal law once the public health emergency expires, but California is going to pick that up for fully insured plans. However, they passed a bill and they said once, um, once the public health emergency ends, plans do not have to pay for testing or vaccines by out-of-network providers. So um, new federal laws. The Consolidated Appropriations Act 2023, this is what President Biden signed right before Christmas. Um, the big changes with regard to the Consolidated Appropriations Act had to do with retirement plans. Huge changes in the retirement plan arena. That's not my field of specialization, but there are lots of summaries online um, that you can find just the kinds of things that are being implemented over time with regard to retirement plans. A few things that I did want to mention is that um, going forward, I can't remember the uh, implementation date, but you can use, you will be able to use retirement plan funds to reimburse long-term care premiums. That might be of interest to some. And also, again, we're going to talk about student loan debt reimbursement plans, but there's a another provision in um, the CA, this CAA that will allow employers starting in 2024 to make matching contributions to say a 401k for, uh, that match the amount that employees have paid toward uh, paying down their student loan debt. Something to look for, look for in well, the we'll future. We'll talk more about that. We really like the whole student loan reimbursement thing, so we'll talk more about that in Next couple there were a couple of other provisions I'm just going to mention quickly that were in that CAA, the Pump from Nursing Mothers Act that requires employers to provide accommodations in the workplace for women who are expressing milk, and the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, which requires you to make reasonable accommodations in the workplace in relation to known limitations related to pregnancy, childbirth, and related medical conditions. I think, let's see, the Speak Out Act has, it was a federal law that passed um, a while back, and what it does is um, it restricts the ability to put a non-disclosure clause or a non-disparagement clause in a settlement agreement related to sexual harassment or uh, sexual assault. And then um, the next slide has to do with uh, a bill that was passed. This one was actually the one that was passed um, uh, back in March of last year about ending forced arbitration of sexual assault and sexual harassment. What I'm going to say about arbitration is this is a huge topic. This area, I think Kathy would agree, is constantly in flux both at the federal and the state level. If you've got arbitration clauses in your employment contracts, in your handbooks, et cetera, I think this is a good time for you to sit down and talk to your employment lawyer about what can you do, what can't you do, um, and what's enforceable, et cetera. I'd like to thank our guests, Kathy Ruffino and Marilyn Monahan, for their participation and allowing me to pull excerpts from our January 24th class. If you'd like to reach Kathy, you can do so at Train Me Today by email at kathy at trainmetoday.com or marilyn at marilyn at monahanlawoffice.com. To everyone out there listening, 
Please stay safe, stay healthy, and stay tuned for our next episode of the Benefits Executive Roundtable. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for compliance tips, cost containment ideas, new trends, and decision-making tools. This podcast is produced by Advanced Benefit Consulting, Anaheim, California. All views expressed are those of the host or interviewees and not necessarily those of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Information contained herein should not be construed as legal advice. We always recommend that you consult with your legal counsel as situations do vary. Ms. Koshu can be reached at 714-693-9754, extension 3. Toll free at 866-658-3835 or visit our website at advancedbenefitconsulting.com.